So we are, today's reading is from the end of Mark 2 and the beginning of Mark 3. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as the disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, have you not read that David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for people, not people for the Sabbath. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. One of them Some of them are looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. Then he asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save a life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. We are ending our series on waiting today. At the beginning of the series, I likened modern life to a top that was spinning. And by I likened, I meant I read a book by Andrew Root who likened modern society to a spinning top. And he said, Stability comes from constant, relentless motion. So I think the best way to end this series, which I've, I do want to say I've really appreciated uh, Sean's voice, Heather Avis, and Trey all sharing kind of on this theme of waiting, of, of waiting to receive from God. The purpose of this series has been to interrogate our inability to wait, that we are all people always working, never stopping to rest, Work is always in our pocket, on our phone, where we are textable, we can check our email, that there's all these ways that to unplug, to stop, to rest, there's this relentless push and drive in culture to never stop hustling, to have side hustles on top of your main hustle, to always be taking every moment of every time and saying, in this moment is an opportunity for me to be productive to work, to never stop working. And I think of waiting as like empty time, as wasted time. When I spend a long time waiting at the doctor, which I did this week with a member of my family, whose name is Jacqueline, and she and I waited for a really long time. We got a, we got a spot in the queue. We finally got into the room, and that's when the real waiting began. And it's hard not to feel in those moments And it's hard not to say to each other, this is a waste of time. And it's hard not to say, as one said to the other, as Jack said to me, we should just leave. Uh, Because waiting is not something we're particularly good at. When I'm stuck in traffic, when I'm really angry because I didn't open ways because it's a familiar route and think I could have saved 11 minutes, that we think of time as this resource that we need to mine for every possible angle, to extract from time itself every resource it presents to us. Um, Waiting 
can feel like a waste. But waiting can also be a time of cultivating a sense of patience and of humility, of hoping, of, tr- of trusting, of remembering the world doesn't stop because I'm waiting. The world continues on. As I, we sang this morning next door, or we listened to a trumpet player play a song next door, he's got the, the whole world in his hands. When you believe God has the whole world in his hands, you can rest. You can experience Sabbath because the whole world's not in John's hands, which is good, you know. I believe this is a Spanish word that combines the word frail with experienced. Um, that, so of hoping, of trusting it. So what I've wanted to do in this time is to expand our understanding of the word waiting. That waiting can be a rich and full time of experiencing God, of experiencing our own limitations, of scrutinizing why am I so unsettled right now? Why, when I am in a position where I'm waiting, do I want to say, do you know who I am? Do you know who you kept waiting? Like we're little kings and little queens and little kingdoms insisting that my time has tremendous value instead of honoring and acknowledging our own limitations. God is always at work in our waiting and in our working. And when we present ourselves as learning to wait, that opens us up to a mindfulness of a God who Jesus says is always at work. Sabbath, rest, when the top stops spinning and just falls over and we're still at peace and we're still okay, is deeply ingrained in creation. Sabbath, the command to keep the Sabbath is the fourth command and it's later some greater clarity of what Sabbath is 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 given in Scripture and, and, and it's not just for the Israelites. It's for the strangers and the foreigners in their midst, that even the servants, the slaves of Israel are given space to rest. The animals are created space to rest, that God's care extends to the animals, the beasts of burden to have a day of rest. And even in the earth, the land itself is an annual rhythm of six years of using the soil to, to produce a harvest. And then on the seventh year, the, the soil is given rest. And there's even a, at the end, I think it's at the very end of Second Chronicles, it's, it's when Israel goes into exile. I think the last verse in there is something like, and the land was finally given its rest. That the land itself was owed Sabbath. And that when Israel went into exile, the earth was given the rest that was hardwired into creation for God when he created the world, created it in a rhythm of creation and contemplation. Created in six days of creation and contemplation at the end, God looking over the work of that day and declaring, this is good. On the sixth day, looking over the creation of people and saying, this is very good. And then on the seventh day, he rested and I mean, what did God do on the seventh day? What activities in his resting, what activities did God participate in as he rested? And I, I, I think I'm not alone. Many Jewish and Christian commentators have said, in that seventh day of creation, God let creation run without him and enjoyed creation itself. I like to think of God 
as going to the central coast of California on the first day as the, as the sun set starting the new Sabbath and watching the sun set over the Pacific Ocean on there. That's, I, know, I know we're biased here, but perhaps the crown jewel of creation. And then perhaps during the day as the sun rose over the savannas of Tanzania and looking, watching the animals come to get their water and to enjoy the good world God had made, going to the Arctic Ocean and watching a whale breach and uh, a norwal, you know, crest with this funny little, you know, unicorn horn uh, coming out of the water and just saying and declaring over the world he had made, this is good, this is good, this is good, and entering into it as a participation of creation rather than as the creator. And God says to his people, that posture of creation and reflection, creation, mindfulness over that, that day and declaring parts of it good, and then on the seventh day of resting, is command. It's in, in, even in the command, in the fourth commandment, it says, for God created on six days and then rested the seventh day. Inferring in there, you think you're better than God? You think you're important? You think what you have to do outweighs what God could have done on that seventh day? Or do you want to join into the rhythm of creation and enter in as someone who knows how to put stops? You know, it's Creation's not speed metal with relentless no stops in it. There's, there's breaks, there's stops, there's rests, there's measures. That wasn't helpful, was it? No. no. People are speed metal. Um, back to the notes. So Sabbath is when we stop doing whatever we call work. Whatever we have put the marker on, that's work. We stop doing that and instead enjoy the good word that God has made, the good world that God has made. There's a lot of people who have thought deeply about Sabbath and say, don't you dare practice your Sabbath inside. It's going to be elements of their inside, but get out there. Go outside. Feel the sun on your face, the grass on your toes, the mountains covered in snow. Make reflecting and joining the echoes of God's declaring the world good and declare it as well. This is good. This is good. Of being with people, your family, your friends, of your church, of coming together and gathering and saying part of Sabbath, part of not working is enjoying community and of worship where we sing together. All we have to offer this morning is a hallelujah, a thank you, a note of joy, joining in the echoes of God's calling something good through all of time. I was really struck as I was preparing this to just take note of how many times Jesus stopped to give thanks. You know, last Sunday, we meditated on Matthew 11, and, and at the beginning, it got Jesus withdrawing from a teaching and saying to God, thank you, Father, for revealing these to childlike people, to hiding them from people who would be prone to exploit and misuse and misunderstand, but revealing it to kids, to children, to the childlike. Um, how many times that he stopped to withdraw from the crowds, that the crowds, you know, Jesus, the, 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 the disciples are like, oh, big crowd today, look at these people, you know, Oh, you know, putting, pushing them away, so you sit over here, uh, and then turning around, and Jesus is gone. And they, they, they go find him, and they're like, Jesus, the crowds are waiting for you. And he says, I know. I had to get with my father. I had to, get, I had to withdraw from the crowds to send him myself, and we're leaving. And they would, just, they would just leave. Or how many times, you know, with the feeding of the 5,000, you know, the disciples bring the need to him, and, and he says, well, what do you have to give? And 
right in the middle of that, right before he breaks the bread, do you know what he does? He looks up and he gives thanks. How many times, and that's just the times we saw, how many times does Jesus, do you think, just pauses to say, thank you, God, thank you, Father, thank you for all these good things. And, and by the way, that's great for mental health, is when we stop to give thanks, think, to express gratitude, to direct our, our joy and our observations to God and connect. It's, it's the, the rhythm of creation, of creation and reflection, creation and contemplation. It's contemplating the, day, the work's day. The, day. the day's work is how somebody who can speak the English language might put it. Um, Thank you, Father, over and over again, joining his Father and declaring the goodness of creation. And I think as the disciples are walking down the road with him, they're following him, and their little, little tummies are growling, and, and they see you know, maybe the corner of a field where there's some grain that's ready for harvest and, um, and grabs the top of it, the stalk, pulls it all off, rubs in this, their hands to get out all the shaft, which are the parts of the, you know, that get stuck in your teeth when you eat popcorn. It's the inedible, indigestible parts. And then popping the grain in, in their mouth. And, and, and the, you know, I bet Jesus saw that and smiled and said, oh, thank you, Father, for creating a world that just overflows with food. There's a hungry person and there's a field right here with an abundance of harvest for them to, thank you, Father, for that. And even the corner you know, you know, maybe it was the corner of the field that they're eating from. Maybe the, the farmer that, who didn't, pl- didn't harvest the corners of the field because God has commanded, don't harvest the corner of your field. Leave it for the poor, for the hungry. And I think that's why they had food that day. It's because they were hungry people with no food in their pocket, no coin in their hand, who were just following Jesus, were very hungry and found, oh, God has commanded that the corners not be over-harvested. And so they got to enjoy that food in there. And, and so I just picture Jesus watching that, joyful. His, his disciples are hungry, they're provided for, God's done both, it's the Sabbath. And then he looks and there's these Pharisees that are like, they are harvesting when they pulled the grains off the stalk, and they're milling it with their teeth as they chew and swallow it. They're working and they, in Jesus, in this joyful posture of, of God's goodness, looks at these Pharisees, they're like, seriously, Jesus, are you going to rebuke them? They're, look at what they're doing. They're working on the harvest. They're, they're working on the Sabbath. What, what, what do you think they are? They, it's, it's a joyful duty to go hungry on the Sabbath. It is so much better for us. That's what we're doing. We're so hungry, but we, we so honor God with our lives that we're not doing that. And so he sees that in that rebuke, and and they're incensed and they're upset and they've appointed themselves as, as, as gatekeepers. They're like, they're, they're, they're not upholding the law. Look, at it, it's written right here, the fourth command. Don't work on the Sabbath. Your disciples are working on the Sabbath. What do you have to say for yourself, Jesus? Rebuke them. And he says, I do have something to say about that, actually. You know, he tells a story about David. You know, David is, <clears throat> it's um, in the part of his life where David thinks, no, Saul's not going to hurt me. Saul, the mad king Saul, he's not going to kill me. And his son Jonathan, David's BFF, is like, he, he, I think he is. And finds out he actually is. So they, uh, in, in this moment of panic, he, he grabs some of his men. He grabs some stuff for the journey, and he's fleeing, and he forgot food. And so he realizes, uh, oh, I forgot food. So he goes to, uh, to the temple, 
and see some bread in there. And this is bread that has been taken and gifted for holy sacramental duty. So if you think about the Sabbath is this day that is called and declared and set apart by God as holy. So he says, in the same way this day is holy, so is this bread. And what we have enshrined in Scripture is that David took that bread, ate it as God's anointed, it, provided, it gave him the nourishment he needed for the journey, gave it to his men, and then they left. What do you think the point of that story is? Is, he, is the point of the story that, you know, the rules don't apply to those at the very top? You know, how does that go when people at the top don't operate by the same rules as folks like us? You want a pastor who's like, you know, this is for you. I have a different posture. I have different rules. that apply. No, that, that's, that's clearly abuse of, of, of authority. So what Jesus must be saying in this passage is the sacramental space, the, the religious space, serves the common and the ordinary, people like us, and this hunger in this case. Hungry people on the Sabbath, taking food on the Sabbath, is actually part of what it means to rest and then to take Sabbath. Um, and then so then he doubles down and he says, people were not created to serve this law. This law was given to people for their own flourishing. Then you weren't created to follow a bunch of rules. You're not a computer that needs programming and algorithms to tell you what to do every day. No, this was given as a gift to you that you might have joy, that you might be filled. And, and to double down, Sometime later, Mark tells us, he is teaching and, and somebody with a shriveled hand is there. And just, there's these Pharisees again, and they see an opportunity to trap and discredit Jesus, which means they think Jesus is going to be tempted to heal on the Sabbath. You can tell why he's so angry at them. Like, really? Tempted? Listen to yourself. Does God want to kill or heal on the Sabbath? Does God want to bring life and joy to a person or mere duty and, and obligation? So he doubles down. He has the person stand up with the shriveled hand and, and asks them. He looks at them and says, what do you think I should do? You tell the people what I should do right now. Do you think it's more lawful to, to on the Sabbath to embody the true nature of the Sabbath and heal this person? Or to prolong suffering. What do you think God is like? Do you think he's scrupulous and record-keeping and saying like, plus one for healing, minus eight for doing it on the Sabbath? Is, that, is he a scorekeeper? Is he up there mindful? Or is God joyously healing a person on this day? And he asks them that question, and they do not answer him. They won't answer him. They're like, this isn't our trap, this is your trap. You know, they can't... You can't turn the tables like that, Jesus. And he calls, he says they are stubborn in heart. Now, what happens when you're driving your car and you're bopping to a tune or you know, whatever, you, whatever you do in the car? For me, it's listening to a podcast. And you look in the rearview mirror and three feet behind you is a, is a police officer. What is your immediate instinct? What do you do in that moment? If you're like me, you take your foot off the gas is the first thing. You don't hit the brakes because that's like, a, oh, 
he, it's a, a sign of like, oh, I see you and I, I recognize I'm going too fast. So you want to slow down quickly but subtly, and then you hope and pray. You're suddenly mindful of every rule you may or may not be breaking in that moment and what the consequences of breaking that rule are going to be, a.k.a. how much it's going to cost you. Picture that feeling, and then picture this feeling. A parent taking car keys to a 16-year-old kid and saying, it is with great joy that I give you the keys to this car. However, driving is a very serious privilege. And in order to drive safely and to continue to have access to a vehicle, you need to be mindful of the threat your car poses to your own health and safety and to that of other drivers on the road. So, take your responsibility seriously. I'm just, I'm talking to everyone right now. Uh, take your responsibility seriously. Um, and that when everybody on the road works together to follow the rules and to watch out for each other, to create space for each other so they can merge, to say, no, you go. Uh, you know, you're, you have the right of way. When we all agree that these rules and systems are in place for the flourishing of people, for their transportation safely from A to B, then we can drive safely. And what, what Jesus is saying to them is, God's not some cop riding your bumper. He is a father giving you the keys, entrusting you with responsibility, but also saying, with this freedom comes the capacity to do harm to one another. So the point of them is not to evaluate and measure you and give you some scorecard and potentially a fine or even taking away your car, but to say, in order for your own flourishing and goodness, the rules are given so you can get a point A and point B and other people can get to where they're going and everything can operate efficient, efficiently and safely. Jesus affirms in there, the Sabbath is good. Resting is good. This was given to a people who had been delivered out of slavery. And in slavery, you are more of an animal than a human. Your worth is measured by your production. And God says to people who had just been taken out of slavery a few weeks before, honor the Sabbath. The gods of Egypt demanded more. The gods of Egypt had a hierarchy with people at the top and you at the bottom. The gods of Egypt only measured value through production, but not your God. Your God values rest. Your God has created a good world, told you how to function within it in ways that all of us can flourish together. And Sabbath is just part of it. The, in, in the fabric of the world for our own flourishing is rest. I want to end, all God's people said amen. I want to end by talking about our buddy Vince. Vincent Van Gogh, this is perhaps his most famous work. Not, uh, the, no, not that one. Um, pretend you didn't see that. Uh, so this is this is the uh, this is Starry Night. So you can see in this moment one of the one of the things you may or may not know about Van Gogh is before he became a full time artist. Um, and I say that because he was never not an artist. He just before he was an artist, he was a priest, uh, and he uh, went through the, the the process of becoming a priest, schooling and and anointing, and, and then sending, and he was out in this small village. I think one of the things that I think we can know about Van Gogh is he was um, eccentric, is maybe a more neutral way of putting it. And I can only imagine Van Gogh reporting to a, a cardinal, and the cardinal walking away saying, like, there's something off about that guy. And, and one of the things he did when he moved into this, I think it was a coal mining town, I forgot to, to 
refresh my memory on some of these details, but he, he served amongst the people, and he was given a parsonage and, and a stipend, and he would give all his money away. He ran out of clothes. He'd, he'd end up indistinguishable from the people to whom he was ministering to. And he wasn't eating. He was feeding people. He was just giving all away. And, and finally, whatever his supervisor was said, I don't think this is for you. And he was essentially fired from that. And so he had a brother, uh, Leo or Theo? Theo, who supported him his whole life, his whole painting career, because he never got any recognition for his work. It was only after his passing that people recognized his genius. And so this is what comes up if you, if you um, Google Van Gogh, and you can see one of the, one of the most notable... Oh, I, what's, what's, what color is Van Gogh most notable for? His yellows. And so in the yellows, symbolizing, or gold, uh, symbolizing God's presence. And you can see in here, uh, this is clearly in a, in a dark space, wrestling with, uh, with, with the darkness. You can see even in the sky, the dark and light are wrestling with each other. You can see this growing, um, I don't know what probably is going to turn into Eye of Mordor or something growing up here in the corner. Um, but what you, what you notice in the middle is the church. And in, as he was processing through art, what was happening inside of him, you can see in here with the yellow representing God's presence. If you look in all the, all the homes around the church, you see a light. You see a light inside them. You see God's presence in those places. But what do you notice about the church? That, that in his experience with the church was that it was much more pharisaical. And what he's saying partially, the many things, you know, if he was just trying to say one thing, he would have just said it. He would have painted it. But you can see one of the tones and one of the images in here is if you're looking for God, don't look in the church. That was, that was his experience. Now, this, this last slide, I think, is just an image of, of, of Sabbath. Um, you can see in, in Van Gogh's, I guess it would technically be the last slide. Do you want to go back one, Des? Um, it's an image of Sabbath rest. I mean, you saw it briefly, but... Oh, there it is. Uh, and again, what color do you see here? You can see in Van Gogh trying to, to find and articulate God in his art that this image of people at rest, surrounded by God, completely in leisure. This, the, to me, this is, this is an image of Sabbath. This is when we understand God's got the whole world in his hands. And it's in the goodness of earth. It's two people together. It's putting down their instruments of harvesting. If you look in the back, you can even see the horses are also Sabbathing and resting. This moment where everything is put down. And, and what Van Gogh experienced, and what I think all of us have experienced to some degree, is if you look to the world to find rest, you will not find it. We have to learn to look to Jesus for rest. So if you are weary, come to the table this morning and find rest. Come and reclaim your humanity. And as you return to your seat, I would encourage you to be mindful of your breathing, to slow it down, to present yourself at peace and rest, and not to feel like you have this burden. Just after communion, just sit and rest and know nothing else is going to be asked of you this morning. Just rest in God's presence and hear the words of Jesus. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. 
for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Father, teach us the meaning of a light yoke and an easy burden. For we are so weary and so burdened. May we find our rest in you. Amen.